The time is now 6 o'clock. Welcome to WORT's Local News for Wednesday, September 6th, 2023. I'm your host, Vicki Iden. And I'm your host, Robert McClure. In tonight's news, a suspect in last Sunday's early morning assault has been arrested. Congressman Mark Pocan shares his priorities in the upcoming session. Democratic state representatives have introduced a bill to end tipped minimum wage for service workers. And we'll learn about Madison's second-ever Youth Poet Laureate. And of course, a very complete weather forecast in the second half of the show, so stay tuned. Good evening, this is Rob McClure and Vicki Iden with your local news coming to you live from the WORT studios on Bedford Street in downtown Madison. Here are the headlines for this evening. The former chair of the La Crosse County Board will seek the Democratic nomination to run against the newly elected congressman from the 3rd District in western Wisconsin, Derek Van Orden. Tara Johnson, who served 20 years on the La Crosse County Board, said she was running to fight for working families, rural communities, abortion rights, affordable health care and prescription drugs, and protecting Social Security and Medicare. Van Orden was admonished in July by House members who called on him to apologize after he yelled vulgarities at high school-aged Senate pages. A former Navy SEAL, Van Orden was outside of the Capitol during the January 6, 2021 insurrection before he was elected to Congress. Van Orden narrowly defeated State Senator Brad Paff last year. Paff has said that he will not run again. Johnson is the third Democrat to announce that they are seeking the nomination. Wisconsin Democrats will pour millions of dollars into an effort to pressure Republicans into backing down from their threat to impeach Wisconsin's newest Supreme Court justice. Republicans have been threatening to move forward with impeachment plans for Justice Janet Protasiewicz if she doesn't recuse herself from a probable upcoming vote on Supreme Court gerrymandering case. Justice Protasiewicz has been the target of Republican attacks since her election in April, largely over comments made on the campaign trail over the state's current voting maps, which she called rigged. The day after her election, one GOP senator recommended her immediate impeachment. Meanwhile, Justice Protasiewicz has yet to even hear a single case. And it's up to individual justices to decide whether or not to recuse themselves. In 2011, the state's high court, then in the control of the conservatives, ruled that a majority of justices can't kick their colleague off of a case. Speaking this morning on Conservative Talk Radio, Assembly Speaker Robin Voss said he wasn't planning to back away from his impeachment plans. A Waukesha judge ruled that the Wisconsin Election Commission should not have allowed the use of a federal election (coughs) registration form because it had not been formally adopted by the board. The suit was brought by the conservative public law group, the Wisconsin Institute for Law and Liberty. Wisconsin is not required to use the form because the state allows same-day registration. There is little evidence that the registration form is commonly used, and thus it is not clear what impact, if any, this decision will have on the election process. The Milwaukee District Attorney has cleared two police officers for separate shootings during Cinco de Mayo celebrations earlier this year. An analysis by the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel quoted an expert on police procedure about the shootings who described one of them as, quote, troubling. The expert, Professor Dolores Jones-Brown of City University of New York, said that a bystander video indicated that the police officer fired 15 rounds at the suspect despite the fact that he had been wounded and was lying on the ground. Before being shot by the officer, the suspect had fired his pistol in the air during the course of the celebration. The discharge caused a mass stampede by the crowd. Professor Jones-Brown said that in addition to potentially killing the suspect, the bullets fired by the police officer could have ricocheted and injured other bystanders. The wounded suspect, who is 17 years old, has been charged with two felonies and is awaiting trial. 
The State Journal reports that two Madison women and two men from the Milwaukee area were indicted in conjunction with the ongoing protests against the $90 million police training facility in Atlanta, known as Cop City. The Georgia Attorney General filed the racketeering charge against 61 individuals for activities ranging for conducting, coordinating, and organizing acts of violence, intimidation, and property destruction. Specific charges included the arson, assault, money laundering, and a host of others, including trespassing. Uh, The two Madisonians charged in the indictment are Grace Martin and Kaylee Meissner. They had previously been arrested in a protest on March 5th and charged with domestic terrorism. If convicted, this carries a sentence of 5 to 30 years in prison. They were released on bond and returned to Wisconsin. Spokespersons for the protesters responded to the indictment by saying that they would not be silenced. A proposal to create a task force to study Madison's affordable housing crisis and provide solutions was the main topic of conversation at last night's Common Council meeting. Introduced by Alder Amani Latimer Burris, the proposal asks the council to create a task force of roughly two dozen experts in planning and development for one year. In that time, the group would review the cost of certain city fees, invite developers, neighborhood groups, and community groups to testify, and debate proposed solutions. The task force isn't yet a done deal. It's been referred to a separate city committee on housing strategy later this month and will return to the council in early October. Transparency advocates have filed a lawsuit against the Madison Police Department to compel it to promptly turn over requested public records on internal disciplinary actions. Journalist Bill Luters is the former editor of the Isthmus newspaper and the Progressive magazine. Luters requested documents pertaining to a letter written by an MPD sergeant to his superiors, uh, who then was subsequently suspended. In response to his request, Luters was told that the request would be fulfilled in a year. The lawsuit states that the Wisconsin Open Records Law requires that public officials, quote, fulfill the requests as soon as practicable and without delay, end quote. The opinions of the Attorney General state that the records should be supplied in no more than 10 business days. The suit notes that requests for police incident reports are typically provided in a few days, but that requests that involve internal police disciplinary actions take more than one year. And those are the headlines for this evening. Now on to the rest of the day's top stories. Early this past Sunday, residents on the 500 block of West Wilson Street discovered a UW-Madison student in critical condition after an assault. This occurred essentially in the station's backyard, and neighborhood residents have been watching the news closely, waiting for updates. The Madison Police Department apprehended a suspect early this morning, and he is now in the Dane County Jail. Our producer, Faye Parks, has the details from this afternoon's press conference. This morning, Madison residents got an update on the weekend's Wilson Street assault. Just after midnight today, Madison police arrested a man, Brandon A. Thompson, and confirmed that he's a suspect. Around 7 a.m., Thompson was booked in the Dane County Jail. Their records say he's facing charges of first-degree reckless injury, first-degree sexual assault, and strangulation. The survivor, a UW-Madison student in her early 20s, is still in the hospital recovering from life-threatening injuries. In a press conference this afternoon, police refrained from disclosing her current condition, but shared details on their investigation and Thompson's arrest. MPD's chief, Sean Barnes, has revealed that Thompson was on scene when witnesses arrived Sunday morning. Our investigation revealed that Thompson was at the scene of the crime as evidenced by a witness during our initial canvas. Thompson told this witness that he had, quote, just found our survivor, pretending to be an innocent bystander. We now know that he refused to stay on scene and immediately left in his vehicle, which was parked nearby. Because of this, we were not able to make contact with him on the night of the attack. Chief Barnes and Assistant Chief Paige Valenta agree that these witness statements, along with video evidence from the surrounding community, were instrumental in today's arrest. Video that we received from the community proved to be a linchpin in the investigation. As a result of this video, detectives were able to read a license plate 
that directly led to the identification of Brandon Thompson as the perpetrator of this assault. Using footage from the scene, police identified the suspect's license plate number. Later, Fitchburg police pulled Thompson over in that same car, verifying that he was in fact the driver and his vehicle had not been stolen the night of the assault. The police continued to emphasize that Thompson is the alleged perpetrator and they will follow the proper channels of investigation. As of right now, they're waiting on more conclusive biological evidence. They did not speak on the district attorney's next steps. Assistant Chief Valenta ended her statement by saying, It is also important to take a moment to remember the survivor of this brutal attack. Her life is forever changed. Her family's life is forever changed. Local law enforcement and Mayor Satya Rhodes Conway also reminded folks of the resources available in assault prevention and in support for survivors. They encouraged students in particular to download BadgerSafe, an app with crime alerts and other safety functions. Our web posts will have links to these resources. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Faye Parks. Next week, the U.S. House is back in session after taking the month off. And when Congress returns, they'll have their work cut out for them in the budget process. Earlier today, Congressman Mark Pocan listed his top concerns at his downtown Madison office before heading back to Washington. WORT reporter Diego Alegria was there. Wisconsin dairy farmers could be in trouble if the next farm bill isn't passed by the end of the year. So says Congressman Mark Pocan who forecasted the next few months through the government funding process to reporters earlier today. While the U.S. Senate has passed all of its funding bills out of committee, the House is lagging behind. That's largely because House Republicans have suggested deep cuts to their versions of the bills, which Pocan says is going to go absolutely nowhere. But a temporary government shutdown could be likely this fall, says Pocan, if a continuing resolution isn't reached. That would come with the far low of about 19,000 federal workers in Wisconsin. Meanwhile, consumers would feel the hurt next January if lawmakers on Capitol Hill can't pass the next farm bill, the bill that appropriates funding for agriculture for the next five years. And if it doesn't pass, the price of milk could skyrocket for consumers. Bad things really do happen, especially in dairy. Basically would triple the price of milk to consumers um, if we had that happen. But this isn't a new threat, says Kevin Bernhardt, a professor of agribusiness at UW Platteville and a farm management specialist for UW Extension. Every five years when we have a new farm bill, there's always this scare of going back to parity pricing. While a familiar threat, Bernhardt says, the return to the economic theory of milk pricing, which would take inflation out of the equation, isn't realistic. And it'll never happen. Congress would never let that happen. It would not only be disruptive to consumers. I mean, uh, dairymen, you know, if they hear the idea of $40 milk, they're thinking, wow, that's great. But it would so disrupt markets all over the place, all over the world, that it would, it would be a disaster for everybody. Meanwhile today, Congressman Pocan returned to state politics taking aim at Wisconsin Assembly Speaker Robin Voss, who is leading the charge to start impeachment proceedings against the state Supreme Court's newest justice. Republicans have been threatening to move forward with impeachment plans for Justice Janet Protasewicz if she doesn't recuse herself from a probable upcoming vote on a Supreme Court gerrymandering case after she called the state's current voting maps rigged during the April election. You all know I've been good friends with Robin Voss and I respect the fact that he has stood up to Donald Trump to the point of Donald Trump taking him on um, when he ran for the legislature. But right now, uh, I think what he's doing is out trumping Trump and that's a problem. You can't usurp the will of the voters by trying to impeach a justice who hasn't even had a case yet uh, to deal with. Um, this is absolutely not just ridiculous, we look awful nationally for this, um, but it's a death blow to democracy. Today, Wisconsin Democrats announced they plan to pour $4 million into a publicity campaign to pressure Republicans into backing down from their impeachment threat. Speaking on conservative talk radio this morning, Assembly Speaker Robin Voss said he's not backing away from impeachment plans.
and they're willing to pony up millions of dollars to bully the Republicans to try to back down, and we're not going to do that. Uh, look, the recusal should happen, because when you prejudge a case, there's no way that you can just uh, kind of have the public accept the outcome if you've predetermined what it is. Under Wisconsin law, the Assembly must have specific reasons to impeach an elected official for either corrupt conduct in office or the commission of a crime or misdemeanor. Protasewicz was elected in April and thus far has not heard a case. Under Wisconsin law, justices themselves are the only people who can decide to recuse themselves from a case. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Diego Alegria. The time is now 6.21. You're listening to the live local news on WORT. State Democratic lawmakers introduced a bill today that would end the tipped minimum wage in Wisconsin. Right now, employers of tip-earning workers are free to pay employees as little as $2.13 an hour under the assumption they'll reach the state's $7.25 minimum with tips. Representative Francesca Hong of Madison is spearheading the legislation. She spoke with our producer, Faye Parks, earlier this afternoon. Representative Hong is on the phone now. Thank you for joining me. Thank you so much for having me today. Today you introduced a new bill with Representative Chris Larson. What would this bill do? This bill is very straightforward and simple. It eliminates and repeals the current statute where the sub-minimum and tipped minimum wage is either $2.13 or $2.33 an hour. What are the financial impacts on workers who have a tipped minimum wage? We know that almost a third of workers that are in tipped industries have children. Almost 11% of them have two children and 7% of these three children. These are hardworking individuals with families or folks who are maybe working multiple jobs. And it's important that we provide a pathway to economic security for them by making sure that they're not having to arbitrarily work for tips in order to maintain a fair living wage. So to clarify, the way that it currently works, employers can pay as little as $2.15 an hour under the assumption that the difference in the state minimum wage, which is $7.25, would be made up in their tips. Is that correct? Correct. And we know that many in this industry right now actually make more in tips, even though they have a tip to minimum wage. But that volatility, the seasonality of restaurants, uh, again, we're looking to make the restaurant industry a much more stable and career-driven place to work. And one of the ways we can do that is ensuring that people don't have to constantly rely on just tips to make sure they're making a living wage. If we make it a more equitable wage for all workers, it's good for business as well. Would you mind delving into that more? I know that you yourself are a restaurant owner. Can you give us some insight on the food service industry, the challenges that workers face, and then the potential benefits of changing the way that wages are run here in Wisconsin? Yeah, I know that some of my colleagues who are small business owners, specifically restaurant owners, are concerned about increased labor costs right now. But many will also say that the instability or higher cost that comes with turnover is actually more in the front of the house with servers, bartenders, hosts, and maybe greeters, uh, as opposed to folks working in the back of the house for you know more stable hourly wages with more hours. And so you know, it, there's a cost to turnover that with hiring and training processes. And we can actually stabilize that and make sure that we're not having to deal with those turnover costs when we have a more equitable wage. You'll see restaurants now starting service fees as well, service charges to help maintain stability in wages to make it more equitable between the front of house and back of the house as well. And eliminating a tipped minimum wage um, is going to further level the playing field, if you will, to make it so that servers, bartenders, everyone who plays an important role in running a restaurant have access to a fair living wage. And I know that there are often complaints from patrons of restaurants and cafes, that kind of thing, about Mm -hmm. these service charges. Would that be rendered unnecessary if this bill were to pass? Yeah, I think um, we're still having to work multiple 
angles in terms of what we want to do is is to stabilize the industry. And I think that the more we can kind of level the playing field so we don't have bad actors who are really kind of manipulating the system more to be able to, you know, and having turnovers of workers. We want to make sure that folks are in a place where you know, we're seeing restaurant workers as workers who are valued and have dignity in their work and are proud to do that work. And I think eliminating a tipped wage helps to contribute to a culture where everyone feels like they're actually contributing to a team and have more purpose instead of having to arbitrarily work for having their wage be dependent on tips. I think, you know, we are working in a consumer-driven industry, and then we do have to recognize that consumers changing behaviors and recognizing that providing benefits and fair wages to restaurant workers so that there is stability in that workforce is how we maintain the restaurants that we love. And we know that restaurants play a vital role in a community's vibrancy and culture, but our restaurants are held up by our workers. And so it's supporting our workers that's going to continue to provide the vibrancy, the food, the culture that people love about restaurants. Earlier, you referenced the seasonality of restaurant work. I believe also you've spoken in the past about the effects of the pandemic on restaurant workers, how challenging that was getting a clientele in. Was this something that informed this bill as well? Yes. I I mentioned earlier that, you know, many of us were nervous about folks working in the back of the house coming back after the pandemic. But we're seeing a little bit more volatility, I would say, in the front of house, specifically management. And I think if we can make the pay structures more equitable and encourage folks to see, you know, restaurant work as career work, it's it's going to ultimately help maintain more stability for restaurant work as well as folks who own the restaurants as well. And it's a time right now where you see seasonality, where people say like, hey, maybe this season I'm going to be making more tips, but then I'm going to have to be adjusting my budget for winter months or when it's slower in other restaurants. And as opposed to maybe leaving that restaurant because of the seasonality. You know, I can say for my restaurant, we have a $15 minimum wage and it ensures that in our slower months, which happen to be summer because we're a ramen shop, folks are still able to budget around that fair living wage and then see an increase in their tips during our busier season. And so it helps to not take such a sometimes what can be seen as a, a boom and bust type volatility in the restaurant industry. And we're looking to stabilize it for our workers, for our patrons and the business owners as well. So did you refer to any model legislation from other states? Did that inform your bill writing at all? Uh, We're seeing minimum wages increase all around from California to Minnesota. Wisconsin is an island when it comes to ensuring that worker dignity, fair wages, and collective bargaining is at the forefront. And so if we want to be competitive with other states, we have to push for legislation like this. Eliminating tips and sub-minimum wage is a good start to ensuring more economic security for working Wisconsinites. And we no longer want to be an island on this. I think we need to look at economic stability, economic growth, and economic sustainability from, you know, multiple angles. And we can't be an island anymore when it comes to having wages that aren't living wages for working Wisconsinites. Do you expect bipartisan support as this bill moves forward? No, I do not. Have you already heard any pushback from fellow representatives, from restaurant owners, anything like that? I have not yet. I know that there are many restaurant owners who say it's maintaining a tipped minimum wage that allows them to keep their costs lower so they can keep the doors open. But again, I think if we look at changing the culture as a whole and making sure that consumers are informed about why we need fair wages for our workers, why there may be prices going up for folks, If we collectively start raising wages, it's going to be, you know, there's going to be more going back into local economies and fewer restaurants that are looking at volatility of turnover as well as the high cost of turnover. What are the next steps for this bill? We're going to continue organizing with folks at Worker Justice, making sure that we are talking to restaurant owners and workers to look at how a bill like this can help everyone in the service industry. And we're going to continue to circulate the bill for co-sponsorship and fight for it to get a hearing. Unfortunately, with the divided government, I don't anticipate my Republican colleagues supporting this bill, but we know that majority of Wisconsinites are supportive of raising the minimum wage and repealing the sub minimum wage. 
Are there any avenues to get around the Republican-led legislature, or do you anticipate that being a real stopping point moving forward? You know, I think the real work happens outside of this building when it's meeting communities where there are talking to folks about these issues and letting them know that there are ways that even though we are a gerrymandered state, that we need to continue to raise our voices when it comes to issues that we care about, especially when it comes to economic security. And so I think the way to get around my colleagues sometimes is really to go talk to their constituents and let them know that there are restaurant owners in their districts, workers in their districts uh, that are supportive of this measure and showing up with the receipts. Is there anything else you'd like to share with our listeners? I have deep love, admiration for the restaurant workers, the restaurant industry. I love restaurants, and it's where this bill has come from, is, is my love for this industry and wanting to see it grow and wanting it to be sustainable and career-driven. And I think for folks who love to patron restaurants, it's important to think about the realities of folks who are working in restaurants and how we can, as a community, better those conditions, and this bill is one way to do it. Thank you again for speaking with me, Representative Hong. Absolutely, Faye. It was a pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. The time is now 6.32, and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. I'm your host, Robert McClure, here with my co-host, Vicki Iden. Thanks for staying with us. Malia Newman, Madison's second youth poet laureate, performed a reading at last night's city council meeting. She appeared on WORT's A Public Affair last month, alongside her mentor, poet laureate Angela Trudell Vasquez. Here are some highlights from Malia's talk with Ellie Muldrow, including a live poetry reading. Last year, Madison's Poet Laureate, Angie Trudell Vasquez, created the Madison Youth Poet Laureate Program. Our city is the first in Wisconsin to become part of a National Youth Poet Laureate Program. The national organization honors teenage poets and provides them with competitive opportunities to showcase their work and talent. Earlier this summer, Leha Newman became the second Madison Youth Poet. Maleha is an upcoming sophomore, and when she was just 14, she self-published her first book titled Photograph. Joining me to talk about the role of Youth Poet Laureate is Maleha Newman and Andrew Tadal Vasquez. Welcome to A Public Affair, ladies. How are you? Good, Good. Thank you. Yeah. Malia, how does this feel for you to be to be one of the first youth poet laureates in the city of Madison and in the state of Wisconsin? Yeah, it definitely feels like, you know, you're making history, right? In a way, it's you are creating a world, a platform in which other youth, other people can look up to you. Growing up, there was no people like me as well as like young people that were there that were doing what I wanted to do, what I inspired to do. So I think it's just really cool knowing that there are young people who are looking up to me and are hoping to make a change or do what I'm doing one day. What do you hope to accomplish with your poetry? I've I've heard every poem is political. I've also heard every poem is a pickup line. Um, <laughs> what what do you hope people take away from your poetry? What is the message you find yourself trying to convey? Just that I think youth voices are just as powerful as adult ones. I think that... More powerful? Yeah. I think that youth know what they're talking about. They know what they're saying. They aren't... I mean, obviously, age... It, it, it's it's a number, right? It has power. It has meaning, sure. But I think that they know what they're talking about. They have had experiences and they are just trying to talk about them and allow, like, shine a light on it. And I think that that's exactly what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to, you know, put that out there, understand that, you know, this voice is, is as powerful as anyone else's. Do you like to perform poetry? Do you like to read poetry? Do you like live audiences? Or do you find yourself more drawn to the the kind of privacy of writing? I think both in a way. I love performing. I've always loved performing. I don't know. I think it's always been really cool for me, but I definitely do like what you said, the privacy of writing and allowing myself to have that space just in my room, just writing quietly. I think that's also very important, but a balance of both is kind of what I'm like still trying to strive for. And it's, it takes a, it takes a 
takes every every day. I think it's just like balancing that and learning about that a little bit more. You just published your first book, Photograph. Yes. Do you think back to like things you wish you had known the first oh, time yeah. you published a book? A mentor is so important. I did not know what I was doing. I wasn't expecting it to be as much as it was. I think, I, so I wrote it during quarantine. I was 12 when I started writing the book. And yeah, I know, I was 12. I had, I wanted to write a book. I've always wanted to write a book. And I was like, let's do it. I have nothing better to do. I'm sitting in my room for 12 plus hours a day. Let me figure out something to do. So I wrote it. It was done. It was finished. My mom had an editor he edited it for me and then I was Come like mom let me figure yes um, I was like let me figure out what can I do with this right how can I get it out there I want people to know and I think having somebody to hold my hand in that would have been amazing having somebody who could tell me this is what you should do this is what you shouldn't like I talked to so many people who weren't trying to help me right they were trying to sabotage that work and I think it would have been so nice to have somebody there to be like yes this is the path this is what we can do I've done this I've been here let me help you I, I'm glad that I did it by myself just because I, it did give me a lot of power in terms of my writing, understanding what is right and wrong, learning it by myself was really nice. But at the same time, I think it would have been really cool to have somebody. Who are the other young poets that we should keep an eye on? Are you looking to voices that are your contemporaries for inspiration? Who do you think the young people we should listen to, listen to are beyond yourself? Yeah, so I think I've been listening to Voices in Power on YouTube, and it's centered in Philadelphia, and I want to go so bad. I think I, I do have to be, like, of age, but I want to do it so bad. And I think they do have a fair amount of youth poets, as in, like, they're a little bit older, right, 16, 20s, but I think it's really cool, and I listen to their poems all the time, and I think it's just being able to see people, again, that look like me and are striving to do something that I've always wanted to do right is just the coolest thing ever so I love that and I think that even with social media right it's being able to see it as a community rather than like some place that can hurt you because I think I found so many people that are doing what I want to do one day and are talking about things that I want to talk about and I think being able to see that right just on my phone is really really cool and I think it it motivates you at the end of the day right it, it keeps you going it keeps me going and I think that's my inspiration right now and I think those are those are the people that I'm really looking up to but also seeing how how much of a impact they're making on people like me right and how I strive to to make impacts like that on people what prepared you to write a book at the age of 12 what prepared you to, to do this work how did you know that you wanted to be a poet explore explore poetry as an art form talk us through how you became our first or our second youth poet laureate yeah so I started with music I'm a songwriter I started with lyrics I loved writing music and I think during quarantine that music turned into just more poems right it was more I, I could say them and I think that's when I kind of shed a light on well what is poetry right what is it to me but also what is it to the world and so Google's your best friend I looked it up and I didn't think I would ever write a book I that was not where I was going with it I wanted to do more spoken word well, but many people think they're gonna right? write a book especially when they're 12 exactly so I, was 12. Yes. So I think it was it was just like well this is something I've, I've always loved writing I've been writing since I since I can remember and I think why not I don't know where it came from I think it was just I'm here I'm sitting what can I do, right? I have a laptop, I have Google Docs, let's figure it out. It wasn't anything serious at the time. I think my mom really pushed me to be like, you could do something with this, put it out, put it out. And so I self-published it. And I think that's exactly when like school came back in and my English teacher, Miss Kittle, I love her. Shout out to the English out teachers. Shout to Kittle. She yes. recommended the Youth Poet Laureate program. She found it. And then I got in contact. I, I applied for that first year and I worked with the cohort. And I think that just kind of sparked the whole thing. And if I look back on those days, I definitely grew as a poet. I definitely can see it. And I think it's really, really cool to just be able to say, yeah, I was there a year ago and look at me now, you know? so It's, it's a pretty incredible thing. Thing. I think if, especially if you can look back at poetry you made with less skill, less experience and still respect yes. that you were voicing something important to you. I'm going to ask to share a little poetry with us, if that's okay. So this is Trojan Horse. I wrote it. I don't even know when I wrote this, but it's one of my favorite poems. I absolutely love this one. Most people don't want to tell you the truth, so they hide it in a bowl of cereal. In the box, behind the screwdrivers, under the sink, in the drawer with all the things that probably have a design place but leaving them there seems more convenient behind words of integration. They say bad words and sweet voices and you love pretty sounds. Most people are so quick to shrink themselves to make their words sound bigger. 
as if the world can't indoctrinate both a straightened personality and a vehement mind, as if you can't be both, as if you have to choose one, as if they want to make the boxes bigger but not eliminate them altogether, I imagine the struggle, the attempt in accommodating to fit a box of fictitiousness, having to bend every bone and break every nail just to be what they want, to present what they'll see. This Trojan horse I live in doesn't know what it's like, gets the pleasure of being what people want to see without looking inside it, without seeing the blood on my hands and the horror in my eyes, without wanting to be anything else. This Trojan horse I live in is vindictive. She has no remorse for what lives inside her, doesn't feel the need to make more room or open a window some days. I imagine what it would be like to leave this body, to shed this dead skin. I envision me without the filter, without the yeah, I'm fine. Every thought becomes more clear than the last that this prayer, this girl, this version of someone I still can't explain, this different thought of the same word, this voice, this book, this line of a story I don't want to write, I pray she finds a way out, pulls herself out of the ink on these pages, the tears on this skin, the overwhelming need to be something she knows she isn't, I pray she stops her skin from stretching so thin it leaves wrinkles on these pages, most people don't believe the truth till they're standing in front of it, most people hide behind glass because it's an excuse for their blind side, I have no interest in changing your perception of me, I just hope you know all your you're seeing is this trojan horse i painted for you oh that's so beautiful <laughs> thank you yes what should people know that you need in order to show up and, and perform what are what is the support you need do they need to make sure that there is just like some good water like what is happening yeah maybe some some food be nice <laughs> no, i think i really want to know what the audience is like mm -hmm. i think i really want to know who i'm talking to because i think working an audience is something that i'm learning in this position um understanding like who you're reading to what you can read to them right in terms of like a spoken word but then more like the art lit lab where it's like a very older crowd and I think um understanding that like I don't want to change myself too much around people right I am still a youth I'm 15 I can't I can't be you know I don't want to grow up too fast mm -hmm. but at the same time you know understand I think I want to understand what the audience is like right who am I reading to what are they looking for when I come out and and read for you guys so um so hopefully I'll have you back because we're out of time yes. thank you so much for joining me today on yes, WORD 89.9 FM you all are amazing thank you thank Ellie. you for having us yeah this is great and it's time now for the most comprehensive weather report on the airwaves with WORT weather guru, Rob McClure. Well, this past weekend's hot spell was not quite so hot or uncomfortable or indeed as long, really, as the one that we had a couple of weeks ago, though we did set a high temperature record this time around. That was for Sunday the 3rd when our... 94 degree high temperature surpassed the 92 that was recorded back in 1960. Dew point temperatures were also much more bearable this time around, holding generally in the 50s and low 60s, uh, up until Monday morning anyway, when readings finally began to creep up into the upper 60s. Uh, the dew point did finally breach 70 a couple of times in the ensuing uh, two days, but we should recall that dew points were in the upper 70s almost continuously back on the 23rd and 24th of August, uh, reaching as high actually as 80 or 81 a, a degrees a couple of times. Uh, that's a moisture level near the climatological maximum for this location. Cloud cover the past couple of days then started to cut into the heat even before the cold front finally slipped through here this afternoon. Uh, instability, which was evident uh, uh, at least in modest proportions on prognostic soundings this afternoon, did lead to some shower development across Dane County about 3 or 4 o'clock in the afternoon. Uh, but that southwest and northeast oriented band has since pushed well to the southeast of us, in fact almost out of the state by now. Column moisture was generally confined below about uh, 12 or 13,000 feet and with uh, relatively warm temperatures further aloft as we typically see in this time of year in the late summer, the showers and the occasional thunderstorm that got going were generally pretty weak, pushing the cumulonimbus tops only up to about uh, 15 or 17,000 feet, uh, just high enough for a little bit of glaci glaciation at the top. Indeed, if you have a look at the visible satellite image of southern Wisconsin and northern Illinois that we have linked on the WORT weather webpage, uh, even at this hour, you can still see the slanting sun catching some of those short towers in relief with a few wisps of cirrus wafting off the tops of them as they move away towards the southeast. 
If you uh, change wavelength and have a look at the water vapor image of North America, which is a couple of links below it on the weather page, uh, re that reveals the uh, exiting upper ridge, which kept us warm these past several days, getting pushed eastward by an incoming upper trough, which has now taken over much of the territory basically west of the Mississippi River. As you can tell from the generally weak west-to-east or west-northwest-to-east-southeast projectory of the incoming trough, this uh, will not exactly be Arctic air that's coming in, but we will trend somewhat cooler over the next couple of days, in part because of uh, cloud development, especially tomorrow and the colder air that will be coming in above ground level. But generally speaking, we'll be seeing temperatures of around seasonal normals, meaning highs in the low to mid-70s uh, out through the upcoming weekend. The general consensus on the longer-range models is for upper troughing and somewhat cooler air uh, amassing up in southern Canada to then slowly make headway into the upper Midwest and Great Lakes region over about the coming week or 10 days, with the most significant push of cold air uh, behind a weak system that's currently off the Oregon coast that's going to be approaching across the plains later in this upcoming weekend. That circulation will attempt to rotate warmer air uh, and more moisture northward ahead of it as it approaches, uh, possibly giving us our next shot of rain, uh, or shot at rain, uh, Sunday into Monday. Uh, incidentally, if you do have the water vapor image up in front of you, you might take note of the little wisps of white that appear in the southeastern corner of the image out over the Atlantic at the very close of the sequence in the past few hours. Uh, those are high clouds coming off of Hurricane Lee, which has developed recently and is predicted to strengthen rapidly to a Category 4 or 5 storm over the next two or three days as it continues westward north of the Leeward Islands. It's forecast to recurve northeastward out in the Atlantic and miss the U.S. coast, but longer-range guidance does take it quite close to New England and the Atlantic coast of Canada by late next week sometime, so it may be one to keep an eye on. It may strengthen and hold its strength for a good period of time to come. But back to more uh, immediate matters here. Tonight will continue mostly cloudy with uh, any additional shower development, I think, uh, confined to the east and northeast of Madison, or just a few showers developing up towards Adams and uh, Washura counties at the moment. I think those will miss Madison to the east. Temperatures will drop to the upper 50s by dawn on increasing uh, winds, which will be veering northwest and northerly at 10 to 15 miles per hour. Tomorrow, stratus and stratocumulus will uh, rule most of the morning hours, possibly thinning enough uh, to get start to get punched through and become more cellular in the mid or late afternoon hours, perhaps. Temperatures will be confined to the mid-60s, probably, on northerly winds at 8 to 12 miles per hour. Skies may clear a bit more as we go overnight, with temperatures dropping back to around 50 on lighter, more northeasterly winds. And Friday, the sky covers a kind of a tough call. I'm expecting uh, mostly clear to perhaps partly cloudy skies early in the day, uh, changing over to some stronger cumulus growth probably in the late morning or midday hours before then uh, somewhat better clearing, I think, in the afternoon. Uh, in any case, uh, that would allow temperatures to hit 70 or so, despite continued northeasterly winds at 5 to 10 miles per hour. We'll clear out overnight, allowing the temperatures to drop into the upper 40s on uh, lighter northeasterly winds. And sunshine on Saturday should take uh, temperatures to the mid-70s on light northeasterly winds veering more easterly. We'll stay a bit warmer in the mid-50s overnight as light winds continue to veer southeasterly. And Sunday, we'll see increasing clouds with temperatures back in the mid-70s, but I think the precipitation will hold off until Sunday night or Monday. It's currently 73 degrees down here at the, temp uh, the station on Bedford Street. The dew point temperature is 64. Uh, winds are out of the northwest at 8 miles per hour. Uh, stratus overcast now up at about 2,800 feet, and the barometer is rising at 22, 29.79 uh, inches of mercury. It's now 6.50 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT.
We go now to September 1963, when the city wrestled with affordable integrated housing, big buildings opened to house and teach students, and a racist disrupted a somber ceremony. Stu Levitan has those headlines and more from 60 years ago this month on tonight's Madison in the 60s. They melt into a dream Madison in the 60s, September 1963 It's a clear case of edifice complex as school bells ring in big changes for Madison and the University of Wisconsin. On the far east side, the city opens its first new high school since West High in 1930, the Robert M. LaFollette High School on Flaum Road. The low-slung $3 million facility is big enough to handle 1,500 students. The far west side gets a new elementary school, named after former Superintendent Philip Falk. It will serve about 250 pupils, most formerly at Orchard Ridge. There are also seven major school additions around the city. And it's South Madison's turn next year, as the school board approves plans for a new junior high on the Burr Oaks site at Magnolia Lane and Cypress Way. But the new year also brings loss, as an east side institution for two generations lies empty. Lincoln School on East Gorham closed last spring due to declining enrollment. And the building boom comes to the university in a big way, as it opens its first co-ed dorm, the twin towers of the $6.4 million, 10-story Celery Hall, the first of three skyscraper dorms in the southeast expansion area. The striking structure of precast concrete has two wings divided by sex, each housing 543 students and 18 housekeepers. It's named after George Clark Celery, scholar of medieval history and longtime dean of the College of Letters and Sciences. A similar 12-story dorm, named after socialist economics professor Edwin Witte, will open next year, with a 13-story memorial to Frederick Ogg to open in the fall of 1965. Some disparate racial data from the vocational and adult schools, where black pupils number only about 15 of the 10,000 students enrolled in day and evening classes, and Mrs. Velma Hamilton is the only black teacher. On the 22nd, close to a 1,000 people gather at the Capitol Square in the year's largest civil rights demonstration, occasioned not by legislation or aspiration, but by tragedy. The Sunday morning murder earlier this month of four black girls in the Birmingham, Alabama church bombing. But the march and rally sponsored by the Madison Community for Civil Rights are temporarily disrupted by a swastika-bedecked white supremacist pushing through the crowd and shouting racial epithets. Owen H. Rearson, 24, harangues the stunned and silent crowd until he is arrested for disorderly conduct. The marchers, mostly white, with a high percentage of students, bear black armbands. They march around the Capitol twice, the group stretching three-quarters of the way around. Jail officials soon discover that Rearson, a Madison native, is on parole from the San Quentin prison in California for second-degree robbery conviction. On the 29th, Tom Hayden, who just completed his term as president of the Students for a Democratic Society, gives his critique of American liberalism to the Socialist Club meeting in Great Hall. A former editor of the Michigan Daily, Hayden was the primary author of the SDS's Port Huron Statement while a graduate student in Ann Arbor. Madison's first public housing since post-war veterans' units near Truax is a step closer to reality, as the Madison Housing Authority approves the final plans for 160 units for families and elderly at four sites. Well, the plans for the family units in South Madison, on Webb Avenue, and at Truax Field are final, not so for the 60 units for the elderly on Regent Street. That's because these units will be the first construction in the Madison Redevelopment Authority's Triangle Urban Renewal District, and the MRA, which has been knocking down houses in this part of the old Greenbush neighborhood since January 1962, 
wants to review and approve the designs. So far, it doesn't like what it sees and may demand changes. The MRA does like what it sees at the council meeting of the 24th when it gets final approval for its Marquette Area Redevelopment Study, a look at the renewal needs for 17 full or half blocks along Williamson Street, from Patterson to Thornton Streets, plus the Dewey Court area. Building inspection records indicate that on six blocks along Upper Williamson Street, more than half the structures are deteriorated or dilapidated. Was racism the reason two Northside aldermen and so many of their constituents opposed a new apartment project on Northport Drive? Or were density, class, and traffic counts the issue? Either way, all were in play. The just-opened Xander Northport Apartments, just east of Sherman Avenue, is the city's first and so far only multifamily moderate-income housing project. The five-building, 140-unit complex, sponsored by the American Federation of State, County, and Municipal Employees, AFSME, is named for Arnold Zander, a Madisonian who helped found AFSME, originally the Wisconsin State Employees Association, here in 1932. Because it's financed by the Federal Housing Administration, tenants have strict income limits. It's also integrated with five black families. Now AFSME wants to build a companion complex across Northport, just east of Dryden Drive. Also federally financed, also integrated. Some or all of which has the neighboring single-family homeowners fit to fight on two fronts. Area Alderman Richard Kopp and Leonard Porter, both of whom oppose the fair housing provisions of the Equal Opportunities Ordinance, vehemently deny race as a factor in the neighborhood opposition. Kopp calls such claims a despicable effort by supporters to portray opponents as segregationists. He insists oppositions based on traffic, overcrowding, and property values for the nearby single-family homes. In September, opponents prevail at the Plan Commission, which rejects the necessary rezoning. But days later, after a stormy three-hour discussion, the Council reverses the Commission and grants the rezoning 12-6. to 6. After reconsideration, a second session in October is even more contentious. An angry cop loudly denounces his colleagues after they reaffirm the rezoning. Neighbors make thinly veiled political threats, and somebody turns off all the lights in the council chamber. A lawsuit filed by 26 neighborhood residents also fails to stop construction. And on the 30th, city forester George Barron reports Madison had a record 388 cases of Dutch elm disease this year, as the city begins its annual fall DDT spraying. The city uses DDT in the fall because the alternative, methoxychlor, damages car finishes, for which the council refuses to pay claims. And in the fall, there are fewer birds around to be poisoned. And that's this week's Madison in the 60s. For your award-winning, listener-supported WORT news team, I'm Stu Levitan. And that does it for our show this evening. Thanks for listening to WORT's Live Local News at 6. Our headline writer this evening was David Ahrens. Your reporter was Diego Alegria. Special thanks to feature contributors Ali Muldrow and Stu Levitan. Lauren Hicks engineered tonight's broadcast. Bay Parks produced it. And Shelley Pittman is the news director at WORT. I'm your host, Robert McClure. And I'm your host, Vicki Iden. Stay up to date with the WORT Local News Podcast. Subscribe on iTunes Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts. Up next is Query, followed by This Way Out. Good night. <laughs>